Chapter 55, Part 2 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 55, Part 2. It is the observation of the imperial author of the tactics that all the Scythian hordes resembled each other in their pastoral and military life, that they all practiced the same means of subsistence, and employed the same instruments of destruction. But he adds that the two nations of Bulgarians and Hungarians were superior to their brethren, and similar to each other in the improvements, however rude, of their discipline and government. Their visible likeness determines Leo to confound his friends and enemies in one common description, and the picture may be heightened by some strokes from their contemporaries in the tenth century. Except the merit and fame of military prowess, all that is valued by mankind appeared vile and contemptible to these barbarians, whose native fierceness was stimulated by the consciousness of numbers and freedom. The tents of the Hungarians were of leather, the garments of fur, they shaved their hair, and scarified their faces. In speech they were slow, in action prompt, in treaty perfidious, and they shared the common reproach of barbarians, too ignorant to conceive the importance of truth, too proud to deny or palliate the breach of the most solemn engagements. Their simplicity has been praised, yet they abstained only from the luxury that they had never known. Whatever they saw they coveted, their desires were insatiate, and their sole industry was the hand of violence and rapine. By the definition of a pastoral nation, I have recalled a long description of the economy, the warfare, and the government that prevail in that state of society. I may add that to fishing, as well as to the chase, the Hungarians were indebted for a part of their subsistence, and since they seldom cultivated the ground, they must, at least in their new settlements, have sometimes practiced a slight and unskillful husbandry. In their emigrations, perhaps in their expeditions, the host was accompanied by thousands of sheep and oxen, which increased the cloud of formidable dust, and afforded a constant and wholesale supply of milk and animal food. A plentiful command of forage was the first care of the general, and if the flocks and herds were secure of their pastures, the hardy warrior was alike insensible of danger and fatigue. The confusion of men and cattle that overspread the country exposed their camp to a nocturnal surprise had not the still wider circuit been occupied by their light cavalry, perpetually in motion to discover and delay the approach of the enemy. After some experience of the Roman tactics, they adopted the use of the sword and spear, the helmet of the soldier, and the iron breastplate of his steed. But their native and deadly weapon was the Tartar bow. From the earliest infancy their children and servants were exercised in the double science of archery and horsemanship. Their arm was strong, their aim was sure, and in the most rapid career they were taught to throw themselves backward and to shoot a volley of arrows into the air. In open combat, in secret ambush, in flight, in pursuit, they were equally formidable. An appearance of order was maintained in the foremost ranks, but their charge was driven forwards by the impatient pressure of succeeding crowds. They pursued, headlong and rash, with loosened reins and horrific outcries, but if they fled with real or dissembled fear, the ardor of a pursuing foe was checked and chastised by the same habits of irregular speed and sudden evolution. 
in the abuse of victory, they astonished Europe, yet smarting from the wounds of the Saracen and the Dane, mercy they rarely asked, and more rarely bestowed. Both sexes were accused is equally inaccessible to pity, and their appetite for raw flesh might countenance the popular tale that they drank the blood and feast on the hearts of the slain. Yet the Hungarians were not devoid of those principles of justice and humanity which nature has implanted in every bosom. The license of public and private injuries was restrained by laws and punishments, and in the security of an open camp, theft is the most tempting and most dangerous offence. Among the barbarians there were many, whose spontaneous virtue supplied their laws and corrected their manners, who performed the duties and sympathized with the affections of social life. After a long pilgrimage of flight or victory, the Turkish hordes approached the common limits of the French and Byzantine empires. The first conquest and final settlement extended on either side of the Danube above Vienna, below Belgrade, and beyond the measure of the Roman province of Pannonia, or the modern kingdom of Hungary. That ample and fertile land was loosely occupied by the Moravians, a Sclavonian name and tribe, which were driven by the invaders into the compass of a narrow province. Charlemagne had stretched a vague and nominal empire as far as the edge of Transylvania, but, after the failure of his legitimate line, the dukes of Moravia forgot their obedience and tribute to the monarchs of Oriental France. The bastard Arnulf was provoked to invite the arms of the Turks. They rushed through the real or figurative wall, which his indiscretion had thrown open, and the king of Germany, has been justly reproached as a traitor to the civil and ecclesiastical society of the Christians. During the life of Arnulf, the Hungarians were checked by gratitude or fear, but in the infancy of his son Louis they discovered and invaded Bavaria, and such was their Scythian speed, that in a single day a circuit of fifty miles was stripped and consumed. In the Battle of Augsburg, the Christians maintained their advantage till the seventh hour of the day, they were deceived and vanquished by the flying stratagems of the Turkish cavalry. The conflagration spread over the provinces of Bavaria, Swabia, and Franconia, and the Hungarians promoted the reins of anarchy by forcing the stoutest barons to discipline their vassals and fortify their castles. The origin of walled towns is ascribed to this calamitous period, nor could any distance be secure against an enemy who, almost at the same instance, laid in ashes the Helvetian monastery of St. Gaul, and the city of Bremen, on the shores of the northern ocean. Above thirty years the Germanic empire, or kingdom, was subject to the ignominy of tribute, and resistance was disarmed by the menace, the serious and effectual menace of dragging the women and children into captivity, and of slaughtering the males above the age of ten years. I have neither power nor inclination to follow the Hungarians beyond the Rhine, but I must observe with surprise, that the southern provinces of France were blasted by the tempest, and that Spain, behind her Pyrenees, was astonished at the approach of these formidable strangers. The vicinity of Italy had tempted their easy inroads, but from their camp on the Brenta they beheld with some terror the apparent strength and populousness of the new discovered country. They requested leave to retire, the request was proudly rejected by the Italian king, and the lives of twenty thousand Christians paid the forfeit of his obstinacy and rashness. Among the cities of the West, the royal Pavia was conspicuous in fame and splendor, and the preeminence of Rome itself was only derived from the relics of the apostles. The Hungarians appeared, 
Pavia was in flames, forty-three churches were consumed, and, after the massacre of the people, they spared about two hundred wretches who had gathered some bushels of gold and silver, a vague exaggeration, from the smoking ruins of their country. In these annual excursions from the Alps to the neighborhood of Rome and Capua, the churches that yet escaped resounded with a fearful litany, O oh, save and deliver us from the arrows of the Hungarians. But the saints were deaf or inexorable, and the torrent rolled forwards, till it was stopped by the extreme lands of Calabria. A composition was offered and accepted for the head of each Italian subject, and ten bushels of silver were poured forth in the Turkish camp. But falsehood is a natural antagonist of violence, and the robbers were defrauded both in the numbers of the assessment and the standard of the metal. On the side of the east, the Hungarians were opposed in doubtful conflict by the equal arms of the Bulgarians, whose fate forbade an alliance with the pagans, and whose situation formed the barrier of the Byzantine Empire. The barrier was overturned. The emperor of Constantinople beheld the waving banners of the Turks, and one of their boldest warriors presumed to strike a battle-axe into the Golden Gate. The arts and treasures of the Greeks diverted their assault, but the Hungarians might boast, in their retreat, that they had imposed tribute on the spirit of Bulgaria and the majesty of the Caesars. The remote and rapid operations of the same campaign appear to magnify the power and numbers of the Turks, but their courage is most deserving of praise, since a light troop of three or four hundred horse would often attempt and execute the most daring inroads to the gates of Thessalonica and Constantinople. After this disastrous era of the ninth and tenth centuries, Europe was afflicted by a triple scourge from the north, the east, and the south. The Norman, the Hungarian, and the Saracen sometimes trod the same ground of desolation, and these savage foes might have been compared by Homer to the two lions growling over the carcass of a mangled stag. The deliverance of Germany and Christendom was achieved by the Saxon princes, Henry the Fowler and Otto the Great, who, in two memorable battles, forever broke the power of the Hungarians. The valiant Henry was roused from a bed of sickness by the invasion of his country, but his mind was vigorous and his prudence successful. My companions, said he, on the morning of the combat, maintain your ranks, receive on your bucklers the first arrows of the pagans, and prevent their second discharge by the equal and rapid career of your lances. They obeyed and conquered, and the historical picture of the castle of Merseburg expressed the features, or at least the character of Henry, who, in an age of ignorance, entrusted to the finer arts the perpetuity of his name. At the end of twenty years, the children of the Turks, who had fallen by his sword, invaded the empire of his son, and their forces defined, in the lowest estimate, at one hundred thousand horse. They were invited by domestic faction, the gates of Germany were treacherously unlocked, and they spread, far beyond the Rhine and the Meuse, into the heart of Flanders. But the vigor and prudence of Otho dispelled the conspiracy. The princes were made sensible that unless they were true to each other, their religion and country were irrevocably lost, and the national powers were revived in the plains of Augsburg. They marched and fought in eight legions, according to the division of provinces and tribes. The first, second, and third were composed of Bavarians, the fourth of Franconians, the fifth of Saxons, under the immediate command of the monarch, the sixth and seventh consisted of Swabians, and the eighth legion, of a thousand Bohemians, closed the rear of the host. 
the resources of discipline and valor were fortified by the arts of superstition, which, on this occasion, may deserve the epithets of generous and salutary. The soldiers were purified with the fast, the camp was blessed with the relics of saints and martyrs, and the Christian hero, girded on his side the sword of Constantine, grasped the invincible spear of Charlemagne, and waved the banner of St. Maurice, the prefect of the Tibian legion. But his firmest confidence was placed in the holy lance, whose point was fastened of the nails of the cross, and which his father had extorted from the king of Burgundy by the threats of war and the gift of a province. The Hungarians were expected in the front. They secretly passed the Lech, a river of Bavaria that falls into the Danube, turned the rear of the Christian army, plundered the baggage, and disordered the legion of Bohemia and Swabia. The battle was restored by the Franconians, whose duke, the valiant Conrad, was pierced with an arrow as he rested from his fatigues. The Saxons fought under the eyes of their king, and his victory surpassed, in merit and importance, the triumphs of the last two hundred years. The loss of the Hungarians was still greater in the flight than in the action. They were encompassed by the rivers of Bavaria, and their past cruelties excluded them from the hope of mercy. Three captive princes were hanged at Ratisbon, the multitude of prisoners was slain or mutilated, and the fugitives, who presumed to appear in the face of their country, were condemned to everlasting poverty and disgrace. Yet the spirit of the nation was humbled, and the most accessible passes of Hungary were fortified with a ditch and a rampart. Adversity suggested the counsels of moderation and peace. The robbers of the West acquiesced in a sedentary life, and the next generation was taught by a discerning prince that far more might be gained by multiplying and exchanging the produce of a fruitful soil. The native race, the Turkish or Fenic blood, was mingled with new colonies of Scythian or Sclavonian origin. Many thousands of robust and industrious captives had been imported from all countries of Europe. And after the marriage of Geysa with the Bavarian princes, he bestowed honors and estates on the nobles of Germany. The son of Geysa was invested with the regal title, and the house of Arpad reigned three hundred years in the kingdom of Hungary. But the free-born barbarians were not dazzled by the luster of the diadem, and the people asserted their indefeasible right of choosing, deposing, and punishing the hereditary servant of the state. 3. The name of Russians was first divulged in the ninth century by an embassy of Theophilus, emperor of the east, to the emperor of the west, Louis, the son of Charlemagne. The Greeks were accompanied by the envoys of the great duke, or Chagan, or Tsar, or the Russians. In their journey to Constantinople, they had traversed many hostile nations, and they hoped to escape the dangers of their return, by requesting the French monarch to transport them by sea to their native country. A closer examination detected their origin. They were the brethren of the Swedes and Normans, whose name was already odious and formidable in France, and it might justly be apprehended that these Russian strangers were not the messengers of peace, but the emissaries of war. They were detained while the Greeks were dismissed, and Louis expected a more satisfactory account that he might obey the law of hospitality or prudence according to the interest of both empires. This Scandinavian origin of the people, or at least the princes of Russia, may be confirmed and illustrated by the national annals and general history of the North. The Normans, who had so long been concealed by a veil of impenetrable darkness, 
suddenly burst forth in the spirit of naval and military enterprise. The vast, and, as it is said, the populous regions of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, were crowded with independent chieftains and desperate adventurers, who sighed in the laziness of peace, and smiled in the agonies of death. Piracy was the exercise, the trade, the glory, and the virtue of the Scandinavian youth. Impatient of a bleak climate and narrow limits, they started from the banquet, grasped their arms, sounded their horn, ascended their vessels, and explored every coast that promised either spoil or settlement. The Baltic was the first scene of their naval achievements. They visited the eastern shores, the silent residents of Fennic and Sclavonic tribes, and the primitive Russians of the lake Ladoga paid a tribute, the skins of white squirrels, to these strangers, whom they saluted with the title of Varangians or Corsairs. Their superiority in arms, discipline and renown, commanded the fear and reverence of the natives. In their wars against the more inland savages, the Varangians condescended to serve as friends and auxiliaries, and gradually, by choice or conquest, obtained the dominion of a people whom they were qualified to protect. Their tyranny was expelled, their valor was again recalled, till at length Rurik, a Scandinavian chief, became the father of a dynasty, which reigned above seven hundred years. His brothers extended his influence. The example of service and usurpation was imitated by his companions in the southern provinces of Russia. And their establishments, by the usual methods of war and assassination, were cemented into the fabric of a powerful monarchy. As long as the descendants of Rurik were considered as aliens and conquerors, they ruled by the sword of the Varangians, distributed estates and subjects to their faithful captains, and supplied their numbers with fresh streams of adventurers from the Baltic coast. But when the Scandinavian chiefs had struck a deep and permanent root into the soil, they mingled with the Russians in blood, religion, and language, and the first Vladimir had merit of delivering his country from these foreign mercenaries. They had seated him on the throne, his riches were insufficient to gratify their demands. But they listened to his pleasing advice that they should seek not a more grateful, but a more wealthy master, that they should embark for Greece, where, instead of skins of squirrels, silk and gold would be the recompense of their service. At the same time, the Russian prince admonished his Byzantine ally to disperse and employ, to recompense and restrain, these impetuous children of the north. Contemporary writers have recorded the introduction, name, and character of the Varangians. Each day they rose in confidence and esteem. The whole body was assembled at Constantinople to perform the duty of guards, and their strength was recruited by a numerous band of their countrymen from the island of Thule. On this occasion, the vague appellation of Thule is applied to England, and the new Varangians were a colony of English and Danes who had fled from the yoke of the Norman conqueror. The habits of pilgrimage and piracy had approximated the countries of the earth. These exiles were entertained in the Byzantine court, and they preserved, to the last stage of the empire, the inheritance of spotless loyalty and the use of the Danish or English tongue. With their broad, double-edged battle axes on their shoulders, they attended the Greek emperor to the temple, the senate, and the hippodrome. He slept and feasted under their trusty guard, and the keys of the palace, the treasury, and the capital were held by the firm and faithful hands of the Varangians. In the 10th century, the geography of Scythia was extended far beyond the limits of ancient knowledge, and the monarchy of the Russians obtained a vast and conspicuous place in the map of Constantine. 
the sons of Rurik were masters of the spacious province of Volodomir, or Moscow, and, if they were confined on that side by the hordes of the east, their western frontier, in those early days, was enlarged to the Baltic Sea and the country of the Prussians. Their northern reign ascended above the sixtieth degree of latitude over the Hyperborean regions, which fancy had peopled with monsters or clouded with eternal darkness. To the south they followed the course of the Boristenes, and approached with that river the neighborhood of the Euxine Sea. The tribes that dwelt or wandered in this ample circuit were obedient to the same conqueror, and insensibly blended into the same nation. The language of Russia is a dialect of the Sclavonian, but in the tenth century these two modes of speech were different from each other, and, as the Sclavonian prevailed in the south, it may be presumed that the original Russians of the north, the primitive subjects of the Varangian chiefs, were a portion of the Fenic race. With the emigration, union, or dissolution of the wandering tribes, the loose and indefinite picture of the Scythian desert has continually shifted. But the most ancient map of Russia affords some places which still retain their name and position, and the two capitals, Novgorod and Kiev, are coeval with the first age of the monarchy. Novgorod had not yet deserved the epithet of Great, nor the alliance of the Hanseatic League, which diffused the stream of opulence and the principles of freedom. Kiev could not yet boast of three hundred churches, an innumerable people, and a degree of greatness and splendor which was compared with Constantinople by those who had never seen the residence of the Caesars. In their religion, the two cities were no more than camps or fairs, the most convenient stations in which the barbarians might assemble for the occasional business of war or trade. Yet even these assemblies announced some progress in the art of society. A new breed of cattle was imported from the southern provinces, and the spirit of commercial enterprise pervaded the sea and land, from the Baltic to the Euxine, from the mouth of the Oder to the ports of Constantinople. In the days of idolatry and barbarism, the Sclavonic city of Julin was frequented and enriched by the Normans, who had prudently secured a free mart of purchase and exchange. From this harbour, at the entrance of the Oder, the corsair or merchant, sailed in forty-three days to the eastern shores of the Baltic, the most distant nations were intermingled, and the holy groves of Kurland is said to have been decorated with Grecian and Spanish gold. Between the sea and Novgorod, an easy intercourse was discovered, in the summer through a gulf, a lake, and a navigable river, in the winter season over the hard and level surface of boundless snows. From the neighborhood of that city, the Russians descended the streams that fall into the Boristenes. Their canoes, of a single tree, were laden with slaves of every age, furs of every species, the spoil of the beehives, and the hides of their cattle, and the whole produce of the north was collected and discharged into the magazines of Kiev. The month of June was the ordinary season of the departure of the fleet. The timber of the canoes was framed into the oars and benches of more solid and capacious boats, and they proceeded without obstacle down the Boristenes, as far as the seven or thirteen ridges of rocks which traverse the bed, and precipitate the waters of the river. At the more shallow falls it was sufficient to lighten the vessels, but the deeper cataracts were impassable, and the mariners, who dragged their vessels and their slaves six miles over land, were exposed in this toilsome journey to the robbers of the desert. At the first island below the falls, the Russians celebrated the festival of their escape. At the second, near the mouth of the river, they repaired their shattered vessels for the longer and more perilous voyage of the Black Sea. If they steered along the coast, 
the Danube was accessible. With a fair wind, they could reach in thirty-six or forty hours the opposite shores of Anatolia, and Constantinople admitted the annual visit of the strangers of the north. They returned at the stated season with a rich cargo of corn, wine, and oil, the manufactures of Greece, and the spices of India. Some of their countrymen resided in the capital and provinces, and the national treaties protected the persons, effects, and privileges of the Russian merchant. End of chapter 55, part 2. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.